Our reading for today is Luke 3, 7 through 20. Listen now for the word of the Lord. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The word of the Lord. Before I begin, I just want to make one announcement that is uh, beginning in January. So we have divided the entire church, uh, all the members. If you're a member of this church, uh, you are going to sign in one of the first six months of the year until you get further notice. And so if you are assigned to that month, uh, we're asking you to come by 10 o'clock for that one month that you'll be assigned. And so you'll help with the uh, cleanup, and then we're asking you to stay a little bit longer so that you can help uh, clean up afterwards. So we're asking the entire congregation a part of that. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. Uh, As we are now in the season of Advent, as we look forward uh, to your coming and to all that you you have in store for us. Um, Be with us now. uh, Teach us. And in the hearing of your word, help us to obey. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. we okay? Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I imagine for most people, uh, December is really about getting ready for Christmas. Uh, you're probably thinking about holiday travel, uh, dealing with family drama and extended families, decorations for the house, buying gifts, office parties. Maybe you're thinking about um, minimizing the 
potential holiday weight gain. Maybe you're also thinking about giving toys to Tots for Charity or maybe putting $21 into the Salvation Army kettle or maybe thinking about the box of goodies you sent to a child far away hoping that it will bring a moment of delight. Those are all good things. But today is also the third Sunday of four Sundays of Advent that lead up to Christmas in the Christian calendar. And for us, the Advent season is more than just holiday cheer and getting ready for Christmas gifts. I know that we skipped the first two Sundays of Advent, but the children's ministry, they've been more closely observing this season with their Advent calendars. And each Sunday, they've been lighting a candle Um, these traditionally colored Advent candles to celebrate this uh, Advent season. Um, I doubt that you or your children think of Advent primarily in terms of penitence and repentance, but Advent for us traditionally has been a time of preparation for the coming of Christ, the coming of God's Messiah, and as a part of that preparation, Uh, It calls us for self-reflection, confession, and repentance. And so if you see the kids or if you've seen uh, what the kids are doing, you'll see that three of the four candles are colored purple, representing not only royalty, but the color purple represents penitence, penitence. And it reminds us of our need for penitence. So three of the four candles. But one of the candles uh, is not purple. One of the candles is pink, and that's today's candle. The third Sunday of the four Sundays of Advent, the candle is pink. And the reason for that is that the third Sunday of Advent is known as uh, Joy or Rejoice Sunday. That in the middle of all this sort of uh, penitential preparation, we don't want to forget that the foundation of it and the goal of it is joy. And so the pink Uh, It's it's unclear to me why pink uh, represents joy, but that's the color that's been chosen uh, over hundreds of years um, for uh, representing joy. All right, um, and today's assigned lectionary readings, they all reflect this theme of joy. Uh, I could have chosen from, for example, Philippians 4 to preach today, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, I could have picked from uh, Isaiah 12, with joy you shall draw waters from the wells of salvation. Or even the minor prophet Zephaniah 3, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart. Right. So there's all these um, songs and passages of joy. Uh, Not only that, I was reminded this week that each Sunday of Advent also has a theme. Uh, I don't know if, if your kids got one of these calendars, the Advent calendars, you'll see that at the beginning of each week that there is a theme for that week, right? So the first week is hope, then love, and then the third week is joy, and then finally, um, peace. Um, that might not be the correct order now that I look at it. <laughs> I have to talk to Pastor Dohi about it. My recollection was that it ends in love, but maybe it is ends in peace. But anyway, each week has a theme. For sure, the third one is, is joy. For sure, I know that. Um, 
Even medieval preachers recognize this. Even medieval preachers, not the most you know, joyful bunch, they had a very different set of themes. You ready for this? First week was death. Second week was judgment. Fourth week was hell. But the third week was heaven. So between death, judgment, and hell, you had this one week of heaven. So, you know, I, I doubt they lit a pink candle or had any decorations, but at least they recognized that, again, in the, in, the, in the midst of this preparation for the coming of the Lord, a time when we do need to, um, to confess our sins, to, to think about getting ready and thinking about judgment and all of that, they don't want, they, even they didn't want to forget that at the, at the core of it is joy. Um, and so we don't want to lose sight of that. In fact, uh, you know, last night, uh, during FG, I was reminded of this again. Um, so I don't know if this goes on in your neighborhoods, but uh, in our neighborhoods and in the neighborhood of where we were having FG last night, um, Santa comes on a fire truck visiting like all the houses. So if you like wait outside, Santa Claus in a fire truck will, will stop by and will you know give you some candy or wave to you, you know, ho ho and all, all of that. Um, so last night, you know, it was like seven thirty at night. It's dark, you know, it's drizzling, right? And these kids who are normally asleep by then were outside, you know, waiting for Santa. And the way it works is the, um, the fire truck and police cars, like, they, they, all the sirens go off so you know they're coming, right? And so as they're waiting with this great anticipation, the sound would get louder, like, thinking, oh, it's going to be here soon. And then it would stop. You know, because they're stopped at a house, right? So it would get louder and then fade louder. And then, like, each time they're like, they're jumping up and they're, they're so excited that Santa's coming, right? And then, in the middle of all that, they had to go to the bathroom, <laughs> right? So, so they go into the house and, the, and I'm thinking, oh no, this is terrible, right? I'm thinking of the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, right? They've gone to get the oil and while they're in the bathroom, Santa's gonna come and go, they're gonna miss the whole thing, you know? Um, Fortunately, they came back out in time, and, and there it was. And there he was. There was Santa um, riding a, a fire truck, uh, sleighs in the shop. I don't know. Um, you know, it, it was such a great reminder for me, just, just the sheer unadulterated joy of waiting for Santa, right? Just, just that sheer joy, unadulterated. Because, you know, as adults, we tend to adulterate we as adults right we kind of adulterate that joy we we tempt you know we keep it down a little bit so so maybe it's a little disappointing to you today that um i'm not gonna preach on joy um and i chose the one reading that's assigned for this week um that has no joy in it um but i was thinking you know i preached on the topic of joy just two months ago and I, i was drawn initially by this passage because of the mention of fruits and since we just completed the fruit of the spirit i thought oh this seems serendipitous and perhaps God is calling me to uh, preach on this particular text. Well, you know, it's important because in that event, John the baptizer prepares the way for Christ. He helps us to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. He helps us prepare. And so it may seem, again, just odd that, okay, it's good to prepare, but why not have him prepare us the first two weeks? Why this third week when it's Rejoice Sunday? Right? I mean, he's the prophet He's living in the, uh, the barren wilderness. He's eating grasshoppers. He's wearing uh, unfashionable shirts made out of camel hair. 
He uh, has a diet of grasshoppers and honey. Um, and he's preaching a message of repentance. Right? Um, it's not the first name or the first guy you would think of. Maybe not even the last name that you would think of when you want to talk about joy or a sense of humor or fashion sense or diet or sermon tips. Um, in, in today's reading, he, he starts the sermon by addressing his congregation as a brood of vipers. You snake spawn. I mean, that's how he begins the sermon. Um, not the most pastoral of, you know, openings. And we might rightly wonder, you know, where's the joy in all of this? Is there any joy in this? Well, I want to suggest that there is something, something here. And so I want to take a look at this. Uh, a few verses before our reading, just to set it up. John, we are told, is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's a pretty good deal, right? Because baptism for the forgiveness of sins. A little water and your sins are forgiven. I mean, who doesn't want that? But John sees the crowds coming for this and he warns them. He says that baptism is not a mere ritual that gives you some sort of salvation, but that they must bear fruit in keeping with that repentance and what that baptism symbolizes. Uh, As I mentioned last week, forgiveness is the work of of God by grace and by grace alone. But genuine forgiveness must also lead necessarily to a changed life. We must lean entirely on God's promises of forgiveness and grace, but we cannot neglect our responsibilities to our neighbors. When we remember our own baptism, we remember not only that God has forgiven us, but has also called us to a new way of life. And so, you know, if you're not bearing any fruit at all, If you're not growing at all in the fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian, but maybe it does. It suggests that at least something is wrong, right? That that a healthy tree always bears fruit in season. As if there's no fruit at all for a long, long time, then that ought to at least make us think about, hey, you know, am I abiding in the vine? Am I in the Spirit, right, in any meaningful way? in any genuine sort of sense. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, John says. Now, this is what repentance is. It's not, you know, people often think of repentance as, you know, you, you cry or you feel bad or you feel sorry for yourself and, and maybe you resolve to try harder to change, something like that. Um, it's not, repentance is not temporary resolve. No matter how sincere, no matter how much effort you make, Uh, especially if it's just to get out of trouble, right? A a momentary remorse for having been caught without any long-lasting change. Uh, You know, we see a lot of this with celebrities on on TV. You know, someone will get caught doing something really stupid or they said something dumb and they'll get called out by social media. And if they're smart, right, they'll go before the cameras, they'll have their family surrounding them, They'll apologize immediately. They'll, you know, they'll look very sincere, maybe shed a few tears and all of that, and then the public will forget about it and move on to the next scandal. Right? Now, we, we, we never know if that's genuine or not. I think it takes time to see. Um, the, the, the historian in me um, is skeptical that it's genuine, um, that it's damage control and PR and all of that. Um, but you know you can be sorry, right? You can even you can really even be sorry 
and not for just getting caught, but really be sorry for what you've done. Um, but unless there is genuine repentance, and the fundamental idea of repentance is you know, completely turning around, unless that happens, those sins, those mistakes will be repeated. And it's just, it's just a kind of a temporary make yourself feel better or maybe try to get off you know, scot-free and then you go back to your old patterns again. Genuine repentance, John says, is demonstrated by living a transformed life, by the bearing of fruit. That's the evidence of genuine repentance. So his message is directed mostly at a Jewish crowd uh, who thought of their faith in terms of a generational covenantal promise, right? They served the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. They thought because we are the children, the grandchildren, the great, 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 great children of Abraham, God's promises to Abraham apply to us automatically. The promises that God made to Abraham and to Sarah get passed on to their children and to their children and their children all the way down to me. And so there's a sense of entitlement, spiritual entitlement. And John says to them, no, no. That's not going to help you because if God wanted to, God could raise up children from these stones, John says. Someone once said this, God does not have any grandchildren. God does not have any grandchildren. And, And I think it's absolutely true in this sense. You are a child of God, not a grandchild of God. Meaning, certainly it's helpful to have godly parents to help you Uh, be nurtured in the faith, but you cannot depend on the faith of your parents for your own salvation or for your own faith, right? It it has to be your own. It has to be your decision. It has to be a personal faith. You cannot depend on the fact that you had parents who were Presbyterians or that your four ancestors were Abraham and Sarah. That's not going to cut it. That's, that's not enough. That's not genuine repentance. That is not what it means to be a people of God. It has to be something that you have to choose for yourself. And as if to highlight this uh, point, you know, if you read uh, the rest of the chapter 3, you see that Luke will now trace Jesus' genealogy. He'll go back, you know, that uh, Jesus was the son of, and the son of, the son of, all the way back. And Luke takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew starts with Abraham, takes Jesus' genealogy only to Abraham because, you know, Matthew's trying to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah according to the promises of Abraham. But for Luke, it's no, it's you are the son of God, Adam. goes all the way back. It's not about being Jewish. It's not about being, you know, having the ancestry in your blood. It's about each and every one of you as a sign, as a genuine sign of repentance, of the baptism of repentance, you bear fruit. And so it traces it all the way back to Adam. And um, that's what we have to do. Now, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To bear, uh, the verb here, it's the common verb for to do. It's a very common word. And it's used to talk about any sort of activity that involves doing and including bearing or making fruit. So it's not an unusual word or anything. 
Um, but I, I chose a sermon title as Do Fruits um, because I want you to see that it's the same word that John uses that the people respond back with him, right? He says, do fruits, and the people respond with the same verb, what shall we do, or, right? So bear fruits, and the people respond, well, what shall we bear? They, these, are, they, these are people who believe. They believe in God. That's a given. They're, they've come out to be baptized. They're being baptized. They're being forgiven. Again, that's a given. In light of that, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to bear? What does bearing fruits look like for you? And so three groups of people ask this question. And it's, uh, you know, I like the fact that John here, at least Luke, uses the plural for fruits, suggesting that the different people can bear different kinds of fruit. That it's going to look a little different depending on your profession. At least here, right? So one, to the crowds, this is everybody now. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Share your clothes and share your food. Pretty straightforward. Uh, people didn't have a lot of clothes uh, in those days. Remember, these, these are people probably, they're uh, very poor people. Uh, maybe they had two shirts. You know, they probably, and, and by the way, this is the undershirt. So you're, you're probably wearing uh, a shirt that you would wear like every day. And then maybe when you go to temple, uh, for special occasions, you might switch out for your good shirt. That's, that's kind of it. You know, that's kind of what I used to do before I got married. You know, I had, I had my Sunday clothes. I had my one suit, one pair of colored socks, one necktie. That was my Sunday clothes. And then, you know, the rest of the week, I wore my, you know, jeans and T-shirts. Um, they didn't have a lot. Um, and, and so maybe John is saying, you know, even if you don't have a lot, you know, you can still share. Um, maybe he's saying compassion for those in need is more important than looking good on Sunday. Same with food. People didn't have a lot of food. I mean, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers where they could just stock up, you know, for the apocalypse. Uh, most people were just trying to have enough to get through the day, right? They just wanted enough for the day. So if you've got extra food, share. I mean, there's, this is not rocket science. And then to the tax collectors, he says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Uh, tax collectors have never been popular. And... In those days, tax collectors uh, was basically set up as a system of franchises. And so you would uh, get this franchise to collect taxes in a certain region. And Rome would say, get us this much. And so as long as you collected that much, whatever was above that, you got to keep. And so it's incredibly you know, built for corruption. You can charge whatever you want. And if people don't like it, you've got the empire standing behind you to enforce those tax codes. And so, of course, people collected more than they were authorized to do. Uh, Classical authors tell us that the tax burden laid on the Judeans was higher than the other provinces uh, at that time. Not only that, you know, the tax collectors were really, really um, hated because the Jews didn't want to pay their taxes directly to Gentiles. And so they, these collectors were Jewish people. And so they felt like they were just you know, these terrible people who were serving these oppressive Romans uh, against their own people. And so he says, don't collect more than you are authorized to do. And then thirdly, to the soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. Again, soldiers uh, were in positions of great power. They could, uh, if they wanted to, uh, threaten people, falsely accuse people, send them to prison, and collect whatever they wanted. And John says, you know, don't 
terrorize people from your position of power. Instead, you know, be content. Don't be so greedy for other things uh, that you exert your energies uh, to bully and abuse others for your own personal gain. Find contentment with what you have. And so depending on your profession here, John's suggesting that you can work out your faith, your repentance, your baptism differently, right? So there are different things that you can do depending on uh, your station in life. That's fine. But I don't know about you, but when you hear this, um, what John tells them, doesn't it surprise you at least a little, like what he says? Like, we picture John as this sort of wild prophetic voice in the wilderness, calling people to radical discipleship. He lives in the desert, right? The people who come to see him during this this high expectation of the coming Messiah, they were looking for the the kingdom of God. They they thought maybe maybe John's the promised Messiah. And so they said, what should we do? What radical changes do we need to do? How do we get ready for the coming judgment? Should we, you know, live in the desert with you, you know, or go to a monastery or, or, or seminary? Should we give all of our money away? Um, should we, you know, become missionaries? Um, what, what should we do in light of the coming Messiah? These are not your, you know, um, half-hearted, run-of-the-mill, you know, go to church once in a while, you know, or spiritual but not religious um, seekers, Right? These are people who are serious about their faith. I mean, they they went out into the desert looking for this guy because they had expectations of the coming Messiah. And and when he calls him, you you son of a snake, they're like, thank you. You know, please tell us more. What shall we do? I mean, right? So these are people, they're they're eager to know. These are people, they're probably ready to jump off a cliff, he told them to do it. And what does he say? John says, go home. That's basically what he says. Go home. Go live out your faith where you are. He doesn't tell them to join him in the desert. He doesn't tell the tax collectors, these hated tax collectors, to quit their ethically dubious jobs you know, and work for a more socially responsible NGO. He doesn't tell the soldiers to overthrow the evil Roman Empire or to become pacifists. Instead, he tells them in a, in a rather boring way, don't abuse your power. Share your food. Don't cheat people out of money. Don't hoard. Don't take more than you need. And don't lord it over those who are weaker. Live out your faith where you are with what you are doing with the people who are under your care or authority. That's doing fruit. That's bearing fruit. It's the same for us. Go home. Not right now. Go back to your neighborhood. Go back to your schools. Go back to your job and do your life, do your job in such a way that it demonstrates generosity, fairness, justice, kindness, gentleness, and the other fruit of the Spirit. You have some power, every one of you, you have some power, some possession, some position that you can use for the benefit of others, or at the very least not use it to hurt others. 
Share and give away your extra possessions to those who don't have any. Be fair and honest. Don't be greedy in your business dealings. Don't be a bully. Now, I know that you know, most of us don't collect taxes or work for the government or serve in the military. But we can all be a part of that, at least that first group, right? To the, we can be part of that crowd. We all have more than two shirts. We all have more food than we can possibly eat. John says, if you have two tunics, give one to the one who doesn't have any. Um, you know, I, I don't have tunics, I, I think, <laughs> right? And it, it's, it's underclothes, so I, I don't think John is saying, you know, I should give half my underwear to somebody. Like, this is, we've got to put this in some sort of context, right? Most of us are not in contact regularly with people who, who literally have no clothes, who you know, don't have a, 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 a jacket to sleep in uh, at night. So it, it's, we have to kind of think through this a little bit more. Um, does he suggest then here that maybe I should go through my closet and maybe um, get rid of half of my clothes to people, you know, to homeless shelters, uh, Goodwill, and so on? Yeah, maybe. I can certainly give some of my clothing away. Um, I should definitely give away what that I know I don't use and it's just taking up closet space. I can't hoard when there are people who, who could really benefit from that. You know, so, and this isn't like giving, this, I'm not telling you like get rid of you know, clothes that are out of style so you can buy new clothes that are more fashionable either. Okay, so don't, right? But this is not a sacrifice, right? This is not a sacrifice in any way. But to think about, hey, you know, I've got stuff that I'm not even using. And, and there are people who, could, who might really benefit from this. Or think about food. I mean, think about the food that you eat and waste. Um, there are different studies and different calculations. But as a nation, it's estimated that roughly 40% of our food, 40% of edible food gets wasted, gets thrown away. Right? That, that is a staggering amount of food. Somewhere between 125 to 160 billion pounds of food. Now, some of that food gets wasted on the, on the food chain, um, which most of us have very little control over. But the biggest source of food waste occurs in the home. By some estimates, 40 to 50% of all food that gets wasted gets wasted in the home. It means that the average American wastes over 200 pounds of food per year. That is a lot. That's a lot. Maybe you don't care because, you know, you've got money, you've got a lot of refrigerators, and you can afford to waste food. It doesn't hurt you economically. But if being a Christian has any meaning, if the baptism of repentance has any meaning, um, and you're going to try to live out the faith and bear fruit in any meaningful way, then you've got to have a, you've got to care about the impact that your lifestyle is having on others, um, and even in this country, you know, more than ten uh, percent of Americans are food insecure. Th- there ought to be things that we, we give thought to, and change our patterns of living. Working out your salvation might mean that you give more thought to overbuying, to food spoilage, to overpreparing, to overeating, to minimizing leftovers that don't get eaten planning better so that food doesn't get wasted. 
it might mean that you know you buy extra canned goods and donate them to groups like Arm in Arm, with whom we've worked with over the years. It might mean you you know you pitch in next year when we do the Rise Against Hunger event again. Uh, I'm hoping next year we get we can uh, get connected with uh, Rutgers Against Hunger Adopt a Family a food program. Uh, do fruit, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's something that we can do. It's not hard, right? John's not calling for something radically difficult. He's not telling you to quit your jobs, abandon your families, and, and you know, go live on top of a mountain. It, it, I think it's pretty amazing. This is how you can be more spiritual. If you want to be more spiritual, if you want to demonstrate that Christ is in you and that you are growing, uh, Paul, you know, John doesn't say anything about you know, reading the Bible or praying more. Again, those are good things too. He says, basically, if you are genuinely baptized and have repented and you are in the Spirit, then do fruits. Give away your clothes. Share your food. Don't rip, don't rip people off. Don't threaten people with violence. And be content with what you have. Don't be greedy. You have more than enough. You know, I, I think he's saying, you know, trust God for your satisfaction and that you will be provided for. You don't need to stock up and hoard. You don't have to like abuse other people and make them suffer so that you can have more because you're you're afraid you're not going to have enough. God will provide. You have enough. Well, that's John's sermon and application. Um, But then Luke makes this comment in verse 18. He says, So with many other exhortations or encouragements, he preached good news to the people. Right. So he just called everyone a brood of vipers. And then Luke says, and so with many other encouragements, he preached good news to the people. And, and this is good news. And I think this is the element of joy and repentance for me. Uh, the great preacher Fred Craddock said this, when repentance and forgiveness are available, judgment is good news. When repentance and forgiveness are available, judgment is is good news. The primary aim is to save the wheat, not to burn the shaft. Right? The farmer isn't thinking about how can I burn more stuff. The farmer's thinking about how can I get how can I save the wheat. So when forgiveness is there for us, when salvation is there for us, then judgment is good news. It's nothing to be feared. These people who came to see John were looking to a new kingdom. They said, what shall we do? Because they realized, right? They realized that their life and their world system were not right. They knew that much. This is not a question people ask when they're comfortable and in positions of power. You don't ask, what should I do when everything is going great? It's a question that you ask when you are not satisfied, when you are in trouble, when you are desperate, when you are disillusioned, discouraged, or unsatisfied, or just plain bored. What should I do? There has to be some acknowledgement that there is something wrong with my life and with the way the world is set up and the way the world is going. Only when there's that admission can there be 
good news. Um, I was reminded this week of an illustration uh, given by another preacher, uh, Scott Jose, um, about, a, about a movie. Uh, back in 1988, there was a Christmas movie, uh, only probably a few of you remember, uh, starring uh, the comedian Bill Murray called Scrooge. Does anybody remember? Okay, a few people. Um, so in it, he plays this uh, TV executive, and he's in a meeting uh, with his uh, junior executives, and they're about to put on a, uh, a version of the Christmas, uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol. And he wants, like, the whole country to watch this special. He wants the ratings to go, you know, through the roof, right? He, 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 he just wants it to be, like, the, the most watched show ever. And one of the uh, junior uh, executives says to me, you know, listen, it's, it's a Christmas special. It's Christmas. People are, people are going to watch, you know? And uh, Bill Murray's character, he screams in his face. He says to him, that's not good enough. They've got to be so scared to miss it, so terrified, right? And then he unveils this commercial that he wants to show uh, for this Christmas carol. And it starts with this, you know, ominous music. There's thunder and light, like rumblings going on in the background. And then the video shows people like screaming and moaning and terrified. You see planes blowing up. You see, you know, shootings on the highway. And the narrator in the background, along with these images, says this. Acid rain, drug addiction, international terrorism, freeway killers. Now more than ever, it is important to remember the true meaning of Christmas. Don't miss Charles Dickens' immortal classic, Scrooge. Your life might just depend on it. And then it ends with, you know, this bomb going off in this big mushroom cloud. And, you know, Bill Murray takes a sip of coffee. You know, that's, right? I mean, it's, it's a little over the top. Um, but, you know, his premise isn't wrong. His premise isn't wrong. What I mean is that until we admit that there is something wrong with the world and with us, There is no need for Advent. There is no need for a Savior. There's no need to wait for anything because you've got everything. You're satisfied. The Messiah we are waiting for is bringing God's God's justice to the world. It's a kingdom where everyone has enough to eat and everyone has enough to wear. No one cheats you and no one takes advantage of you or bullies you or beats you up. In God's kingdom, evil has been dealt with and defeated. That's good news of great joy if you are suffering. Right? If you're in the top of the heat and you can do whatever, like, then this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you don't need a savior. But if you can see that the world is not right, if you can see that your life is not quite right, then you know you need help. And you know you need a Savior. And that's the joy of the Advent season. Because I think if, you know, if we think about Advent, and especially Christmas, only as you know, a baby Jesus you know, sleeping sweetly in the hay, um, isn't the holidays nice? Everyone can be nice to each other. We get presents and we can eat. And um, if we get lulled into like, you know, hey, you know, we're pretty good people. We can be nice if we try like, if, if that's it, no, that, that's not it. That is not the truth. You are lost. You are a brood of vipers. 
We have to begin there. And until we acknowledge that we are in trouble, there's no point for any of this. Those who came out to see John, they knew that the world was broken. They suffered under the selfishness of others and of systematic injustice in the world. And they were able to admit and recognize that they were also complicit in this system of oppression, right? The tax collectors and the soldiers, they knew they were part of the system that was adding to the suffering of their neighbors. What must we do? They had the desire to make a change in themselves and in the world. And that's the good news. John is not calling us here today to overthrow the empire. He's calling us to a life of bearing fruit that demonstrates to the world that the kingdom of God is near. It is here. He's pointing us toward Jesus. And he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus will make things happen. It's, it's, again, it's not about us trying harder, but allowing God's spirit by baptism of water and fire, receiving the work and the power of this Holy Spirit. Last week I said, you have the power that has been given. All that you need, all that you need to live godly lives, all that you need to bear fruit has been given to you. Abide in me, Jesus says, and you will bear much fruit. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance that leads to fruit bearing. Jesus said, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray together. God, we know... um, we know that repentance is not, um, is not about us um, executing a, a world or self-improvement program. But we also, that, we also know that the season of Advent, of preparation, of repentance, calls us toward a life of fruit-bearing, of doing fruit, that cares for our neighbors, that fruit is for the community. And so God, help us to ask ourselves this season, what should I do? What should I do? Help us to listen to your leading so that we can do and bear fruit. Help us to give of our clothes, of our food, of our time, of our talents, of our resources, and all the the countless ways that you have so richly gifted us. Keep us from fearful hoarding, from discontentment of always wanting more, and from lording it over those who are weak. Instead we ask you to help us to live as free and joyful people, bearing fruits that feed the entire community. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.